Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, the future of ARPA-H. That's the U.S.'s newest health research agency. And the WTO has an agreement on COVID IP. What's next? Plus, the UK is paying for two antibiotics in a world-first subscription model. All right, let's turn to you, Steve. You uh, tucked into ARPA-H a bit last week. Congress has appropriated $1 billion for the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. It's now considering a request from President Biden for another $5 billion. That's a lot of money. What will it go toward as the agency ramps up? Well, yeah, it's debatable as to whether it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to taxpayers and people thinking about their pocketbooks, it's maybe not a lot of money if you're thinking about the ambitions that this organization has to transform all of medicine. I spoke with Tara Sweats, who's the acting principal deputy director of NIH, who spent the last year working to turn the idea of ARPH into reality, and with Adam Russell, who's the um, acting deputy director of ARPH, about what they're doing, what's been done to stand up the agency, and where they're going to be going forward. One of the most interesting things to me is the difference in the way that the politicians, including President Biden, who are promoting ARPA-H, talk about the agency and the way that the people who are actually setting it up talk about it. And there's a big difference. When President Biden spoke about it on the campaign trail, when he talked to Congress about it, when he talked about it at a recent event at the White House, he always talks about it as being a vehicle for realizing his, his ambition of dramatically reducing the burden of cancer and also of doing something similar for Alzheimer's and other chronic diseases. It's always in terms of finding cures for diseases. And that's the way that Representative Anna Eshoo, who's promoting legislation on it, and others in Congress have talked about it. Take a step back and you talk to the people who are actually working on it. What they say is it's not going to be focused on specific diseases or coming up with cures or therapies for specific diseases. It's going to be looking at ways to invest in transformative science and transformative policy that's going to have broad effects and be applicable across a variety of diseases. So it's a very different way of thinking about and imagining what this new organization is going to do. Obviously, cancer is very personal for Biden. We all know that. Does Biden, does the general public really latch on to the understanding of the importance of technologies, technology breakthroughs, as distinct from disease and what needs to be done? So when I say politics, I think that's what I mean. Is it really more a sense of you need to sell it this way to engage the public in the need for it and then let the wonks who are actually doing it figure out what the best use of the money is? I think that's probably the most generous interpretation of what's happening. And it's reasonable because it, it would be very difficult, I think, to persuade Congress to give $6 billion to an agency that's doing things that members of Congress and the public don't really understand. The NIH and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy had a series of 15 listening sessions last year 
where they talk to people in the biomedical research community, patients, VCs, all kinds of people about what they think that ARPA-H should do. And their take home from this was that it shouldn't be focusing on specific diseases. And it gave the example of the kinds of things that it should do. It said, well, PCR, that was a, a technology that was developed that has had transformative effects on many things. The most obvious thing to the general public, of course, are the PCR tests for COVID, but it's been much broader than that. But if you go to the public and the Congress and say, we're going to ask you to invest $6 billion in an agency that's going to do things like PCR, it's a lot less likely that you'll get the kind of enthusiasm that you need to sustain the funding than if you tell them, we're going to cure cancer, we're going to um, eliminate the threat from Alzheimer's, you know. But I think that the trick for the first director, because they haven't recruited their first director yet, the trick for the first director is going to be to manage this transition and expectations from people who have backed the agency, this new agency, with the idea that it's going to produce pump-out cures for specific diseases to what it's actually going to be doing and to manage those expectations. The other expectations he's going to have to manage or she's going to have to manage are going to be about the timing, because one of the things that's motivating the investment in ARPA-H is a frustration at the pace of transforming science into medicine. But of course, ARPA-H isn't going to do things overnight. What Adam Russell, the acting deputy director of ARPA-H, told me is that, you know, you shouldn't expect any kinds of returns on the investments for at least three years after the agency has been stood up and is, is functioning. So that's also going to be part of the inaugural director's job is to kind of manage these expectations. So that brings up a couple of more things that I just wanted to, to tap into. One is, is the focus on technology as distinct from disease in any way sort of marking out different territories so there's not a turf war with NIH, which is specifically about health? And the second question, Steve, is you talked about the future director's brief, and we can, we can go into that, but you know, delivering or returning on investment within three years, I think you said, what would that even look like? I think most investors would be delighted to get an ROI in three years in, in our field. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's so much backing away from this focus on specific diseases is about avoiding a turf war with NIH, because I think that what ARPH is going to do is really going to be quite different from NIH. I think it's really about seeing what kind of really positive changes they can make in the kind of timeframes that they're talking about, which is three to six years, and also doing something that the private sector already isn't doing. For example, it makes little sense for ARPH to invest a great deal specifically in cancer when there's no field of medicine that's A, moving faster, making faster progress than cancer, and two, that has got more enthusiasm for investment from both the public and the private sectors. I also want to back up a little bit. One of the things that I, that I learned from the interview is that it's not only going to be about technology. There's going to be a big focus, Adam Russell said, on human behavior and on public policy. So they're going to be addressing public policy changes as well as focusing on human behavior. The other thing, to use the cliche, they're building the airplane while they're flying it. A lot of things are still up in the air. Not only is the budget for ARPA-H up in the air and the fact that we don't know who's going to be the inaugural director, and there's a great deal resting on the shoulders of whoever's going to be the first director to 
set the policy and the culture of the agency. But Congress isn't done with it yet either. This week, it's likely that the House is going to take up legislation, the representative issue has introduced, that would change the way that ARPA-H is structured. So right now, ARPA-H is technically part of NIH, and it's also independent from NIH. So basically, what they've done is they're leaning on NIH for a lot of the infrastructure for IT, for hiring, for administration, things like that. But they're also emphasizing how independent of NIH it's going to be. The ARPA-H director will report directly to the HHS secretary, not to the NIH director. But Representative Eshoo's legislation would change all that and would say it has to be even more separate from NIH. It has to be a completely different entity in HHS. It's not certain that the House will pass that. If it does, it's anybody's guess what the Senate will do. Still, you know, ARPH is moving forward, even though these kind of foundational decisions are being debated in Congress while they're doing it. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of people choose to try and get a job in NIH versus ARPA and if the, you know, how that plays out. Yeah, that'll certainly be something we'll be watching, Simone. All right, let's turn to the WTO and its agreement on IP. Now, the World Trade Organization has managed to build a consensus somehow among opponents and proponents of loosening IP protections on COVID-19 medical countermeasures. Steve, what's the likely outcome of this deal? Well, when you say that they forged a consensus, the consensus, which I wrote about in a story last week, is that the agreement that they've reached isn't going to have any effect on the global supply of vaccines. There's not going to be one vial of vaccine manufactured that wouldn't have been manufactured in the absence of this agreement. So that's kind of a a negative uh, precedent. There's there's been a lot of uh, talk about the agreement at the WTO. A lot of it is ill-informed. It's not a broad-based waiver from intellectual property protections for vaccines, which is what it was talked about at the beginning. Instead, what they've created is is an agreement to clarify and narrow some of the exceptions to export restrictions on vaccines that are manufactured using existing compulsory licensing provisions under TRIPS. It's limited to a five-year period, which in practical terms means that it's unlikely to ever result in any additional manufacturing capacity. If you go backwards and you think about the time it's going to take to either build new factories or to expand production capacity in existing factories and then go through all the regulatory steps and so on, it's unlikely to have any effect. The bigger question is going to come in six months when the WTO is going to look at it again and decide whether they will extend the exceptions on export restrictions for products manufactured under compulsory licenses to diagnostics and to therapies for COVID. If that were to happen, it would have a bigger impact. My personal view is that's not going to happen. The United States and other countries are not going to allow that to happen. So what we've got is something that you know the diplomats like, the trade negotiators like, because they've come to a consensus among the 80-some-odd agreements of the World Trade Organization, and they can say that they've accomplished something. But in fact, it's pretty disappointing 
the global biopharmaceutical trade associations are also disappointed by it, mostly because I think it sets a precedent. They think it sets a bad precedent for loosening restrictions on intellectual property rights around products for pandemics. The global health organizations and the organizations that are promoting the idea of changing intellectual property rights around products that are used for public health emergencies are also disappointed in it because they feel like it um, hasn't really accomplished much. All right. Wow. Thanks for breaking that down, Steve. Um, let's turn to the UK. Uh, Simone, I'd like to bring you back in. The UK, your motherland, has a deal in place with Pfizer and Shionogi on a subscription-based payment pilot for two antibiotics that could serve as an example for other countries and their payers on how to develop their own subscriptions for antibiotics. Clearly a great need here. Simone, can you break down this deal and what's the likely impact and is it likely to be adopted elsewhere? So thanks, Jeff. First of all, I should say that this story was written by Richard Guy, our other resident British accents. But you don't have to have a, a UK accent, an English accent, I should actually say, in order to talk about this, because it is actually, I think, globally important. Um, I'm going to ask Steve in a minute how big the impact you think this is, but I think it's incredibly interesting because everybody knows that we have this looming crisis of antimicrobial resistance, resistance to antibiotics and overprescription of that. Everybody in the street knows this, and they knew this even before this pandemic. And many people have called this the next pandemic. So what it's done, as we all know, is to really chill investment and development of new antibiotics. And companies that have even created new antibiotics have, have gone under because there's no business model for them. So I credit NICE, which is often not thought of as NICE, but NICE and the NHS, for working together to come up with a payment model that some people call, I think they call it the Netflix model, although I don't know if Netflix is doing well enough really to deserve that anymore, but still, um, the subscription model and the idea that people have been talking about in the field for a long time is to de-link revenue from unit volume. And what that means is that, you know, most of the time, the more of a drug you sell, the more money you make. So you sell more units, you make more money. But with antibiotics, you have this curious situation where you want to create something where you don't want people to actually use it so much because that is going to work against it. So what NHS and NICE have done, and they've signed an agreement, as you said, with uh, Shionogi and with Pfizer, is they have bought a stock amount of these antibiotics. They said, we're going to buy this lump amount, and then we're going to use it as much as we need it but your revenue is guaranteed. And so the idea is to come up with ways that give the biotech or biopharma industry some security in that if they create these products, they will get revenue from them that isn't necessarily subject to it, how much is used. So I credit them with coming up with a creative solution and working it through and basically working with the industry to address this problem which they're recognizing is fundamentally a business model problem at the intersection of science. Now, I'm going to ask Steve, is it going to make a difference? 
So I guess my role um, in in the show today is to kind of be a, a throw a little bit of cold water on things. It, it directionally, uh, it's definitely in the right direction. It's really an interesting model, and things like this are going to be needed to stimulate the development of novel antibiotics and to create business models that will allow companies to develop um, products that, in the best case, aren't going to be used or are going to be used very little. Having said that, this is pretty small scale. By itself, it's not going to move the needle a great deal. What's really needed is to do similar models on a much bigger scale in bigger markets, for example, in the United States or in Europe, and also to look at other, other solutions for providing payments for antibiotics. In the United States, one of the things that's being discussed is legislation called the Disarm Act which would separate payments for antibiotics from bundles, bundled care payments, so that hospitals would have more incentive to spend money on more expensive antibiotics. I think that what's needed is, is a big push to experiment with a, a number of different business models, all of them aimed at facilitating the market for antibiotics. I think that it's a little bit of a mistake to say that this is a pandemic that could happen in the future. I think the way I would look at it is this, it's a pandemic that's already started. It's slow rolling, so people don't see it as much as they do with COVID, but the number of antimicrobial resistant infections is increasing globally. And unlike COVID or a viral infection, the timelines for developing new antibiotics are much longer we're already behind on that as a society and the, the whole world. We need to do more things much more urgently to address the problem. So yeah, what, what they've done in the UK is a good step forward as an example uh, of the kind of thing that should be experimented with. In itself, it's not going to uh, move the needle enough. You know, I, I think that's, that's a good point. I would point people to Biocentury's coverage. We have been covering and we will continue to cover innovative approaches. We've had editorials written by key stakeholders in the industry. There are some major players who are creating funds, investment funds, specifically for antimicrobial resistance and certainly working with governments. It, it is, as Steve says, it is actually an emergency that is already here. And uh, I encourage people to check out what we've written and let us know if there are other things bubbling up. The other thing is that a week from Thursday, we'll have an interview on the BioCentury show with former FDA commissioner and former CMS administrator, Mark McClellan, where he talks about this intersection of innovative payment models and biomedical innovation. And he specifically discusses the um, AMR space and what can be done and what should be done to use innovative payment models to promote the development of new antibiotics. Yeah, and uh, getting a little plug here for our most recent BioCentury show, I sat down with Samantha Dew. She's kind of a big deal. She's the founder, CEO, and chairperson of Xi Lab. She spoke about how she is steering her company, which is one of the most closely watched in China biotech, through increasing price pressure wrought by the country's reimbursement system the NRDL, as well as the ongoing downturn that's affecting all biotechs. 
A lot of her thoughts on the latter point, I thought really echoed comments that JP Morgan's Mike Gato made when he was on the BioCentury show in spring about how biotechs are really being forced to get back to the biotech roots of entering risk sharing deals, uh, focusing on priority programs. But one of the most interesting bits I thought she talked about were comments on leadership and team building. Simone, did you tune into uh, any of that? Did I ever, Jeff? Um, of course I tuned in and I encourage everybody else to do the same. And, you know, this was when Samantha got really passionate, right? And you know, sometimes somebody says something that you kind of know and people talk about, but they never actually just say it out loud quite so simply. And what she said is that really hit home is the importance that she's like, great ideas can come from anywhere in your company, whatever level, and leadership can come from anywhere in your company. And so it's not really about just appointing leaders. It's about kind of getting out the way and giving people an opportunity so that when they step forward and lead, they can do that. And I think that's just so important for people up and down the chain to understand that it's not always something that you have to wait for to be handed to you. Now, we know that not every company is made the same. And what Samantha's saying is that that is a culture that she really um, tries to embed in her company. But I think one of the issues is that there are different companies and different workplace environments. And so, Jeff, I'm going to hand it to you to plug our survey, which we want everybody to participate in. Yeah. So as Simone said, yeah, the talent crunch is real. We're hearing from stakeholders throughout industry that finding and keeping the right talent has taken outsized importance. And we would like to hear from you about how it's going for you. Uh, we're, we're trying to capture the perspectives and goals of employers and employees throughout the biopharma ecosystem. And we have a survey that can help you do this. And if you are tuning into us via Spotify, you should be able to find the link right there. If you found us via the story on our website or in our email, there's a handy link to the survey there, or you can feel free to email me at jeff at biocentury.com and I'll set you up. It's really important that we hear from you because we want to try to capture what is going on for you at your company. What is bringing new entrants to biopharma and how can they be set up for success? How are you as a senior leader approaching hiring and retention? So please take a few minutes to fill out our survey. We don't we don't ask much of you. So can I just do one more one more one more constituency that we want to hear from? If you're a founder, a UA company founder, all of the people that just just said people entering the industry, uh, leaving the industry, uh, people going from one company to another, people staying in their company, but on an equal footing, people founding new companies, whether it's your first company, or this is like you're an old timer, you've done this 50 times, we have a special section for people founding companies. So go do the survey, follow all the links that Jeff just talked about, because we really think that getting to the heart of this is, is incredibly important. And 
we want to know what you think. Excellent. And thanks in advance for that. And thank you for tuning in to BioCentury this week. We look forward to uh, catching you again next week, whether it be on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or Google, or via biocentury.com. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>